Well, good morning. Oh, that sounded rather feeble. Good morning. As you can tell, summer is coming to an end, and I'm the last of a long line of uh, preachers because Pastor Carlos should be back next Sunday as the Life of Redeemer uh, gets hopping again. And so, again, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to preach. Um, I'll be finishing up in 1 John chapter 5. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we preached as we began in 1 John 5, as we we're looking at John talks about what can we know for certainty. And he talks about overcoming the world. When we looked at the beginning of uh, chapter 5, he talked about core beliefs that we have, uh, that we must believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. He talks about witnesses to that truth and the results of that truth. And then uh, two weeks ago, we looked at uh, chapter uh, 5, beginning with verse 13. He talks about, again, things that we can know with certainty as he talks about that we can know that we have the assurance of eternal life and the assurance of answered prayer. And then he gave an example of that dealing with sin. And today we'll continue in, in uh, verse 18. So let's read uh, the Word of God. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that we would be encouraged and challenged, Lord, that we'd have the assurance of the message that you want us to learn from John. And we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I've looked at this as a Christian Sermon Assurance Part 2 because Part 1 we begin looking at verse 13. And what are some of the synonyms for assurance? One is certainly a certainty. But what is the antonym or the opposite would be uncertainty or doubt. And the definition of doubt according to the Oxford Dictionary as a noun is a feeling of uncertainty or lack of conviction. And then as a verb, the first definition of doubt is question the truth or fact of something. The second definition is disbelieve or lack faith in someone. And the third definition without an object is feel uncertain, especially about one's religious beliefs. Now, the Baker Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology on an article on doubt says this, It is possible to have questions or doubts about persons, propositions, or objects. Philosophy, or philosophically and epistemologically, doubt has been deemed a valuable element in honest, rational inquiry. It prevents us from reaching hasty conclusions or making commitments to unreliable and untrustworthy sources. A suspension of judgment until sufficient inquiry is made and adequate evidence is presented is judged to be admirable. In this light, doubt is not an enemy of faith. This seems to be the attitude of the Bereans in Acts 17.11, which says, again, now these Jews were nobler than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Questioning or doubting motivates us to search deeper and further into an understanding of faith. But then adds this. With only rare exceptions, however, 
Doubt in Scripture is seen as a negative attitude or, act, or action because it is directed against God by man or by evil spiritual agents. The word connotes the idea of weakness in faith. Now, I'm sure you've heard the term sow seeds of doubt. What is the definition of that, of that little idiom? It says to cause someone to have doubts or worries or concerns about something to introduce someone to doubtful or some idea. And this is what Satan did in the beginning in Genesis 3. That's why he had us read that passage. Because what does Moses write? He says in Genesis 3.1 Now the servant was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. Again, if you look at the definition of doubt for the first one, this is what Satan tried to do. Question the truth or fact about God in order to cause definition to disbelieve or lack of faith in God in the minds of Adam and Eve. And his attack today has not changed. You can see it with some of the battles that we are having in our culture. And you can see that he uses the same strategy. Did God actually say, for example, that marriage is between a man and a woman? Or did God actually say that he created man in the image of God, male and female? Or did God actually say, I am the only true God? Or did God actually say, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. Or that Jesus is God the Son and the Son of God. These are some of the issues that society fights us on. And yet John wants us to have assurance in what does he say. And you may see some of the variations today. Again, on some of these issues. Does Scripture actually say this? Or does Scripture really mean this? Did Paul actually condemn all sorts of sins? And some sins get a pass. And so they question what God says. They question what Scripture says. And John wants us to have certainty in what we believe. In fact, in 1 John 5, six times he uses the word, we know. He uses it to once in verse 13, twice in verse 15, and then in 18, 19, and 20 as we look at today. And it's a type of word that we can know with certainty. That's what John wants us to know because Satan deals with doubt. He wants us to doubt our salvation. He wants us to doubt our relationship. He wants us to doubt the core beliefs about Jesus, that he's the Christ, that he's the Son of God. So let's look at what John has to say. He begins in verse 18 with the assurance of victory over sin and Satan. Again, John writes, We know, and again, we can be sure as how that can be translated, that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. Believers do not practice sin. And again, it's in the present tense, the idea of ongoing action. That's why the ESV translated, does not keep on sinning. Again, it says that the... Christians do not sin, does not keep on sinning. How are believers defined? Well, we know from 1 John 5, 1 and 4, those who believe in God are born of God. Those who believe that Jesus is the Christ. Those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Those who have been born of God. And what John is saying is that sin should not be the lifestyle of the believer, of those who have been born of God. 
Again, John writes in 1 John 3, 7 and 9, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Again, that's what Satan tries to do. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And that is the hope that we have. Our life should be characterized by obedience. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't sin. John makes the provision in 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, how does it go? He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And John sandwiches that between verses 8 and 10 when he challenges his readers. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned in verse 10, we call God a liar and His word is not in us. So he's not saying that we don't sin, but it is not the characteristic of our life. John and God take sin seriously. Well, how can he make this claim that we don't make sin the practice of our life? The next part of this verse, he says, um, the one born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him. Well, who is that he was born of God? It's referring to Jesus. And again, he uses a tense here referring to a past action, which would be the incarnation. That's who was born again. It speaks of, of his coming. Uh, it speaks of the specific event that we can go back to that historical event. It speaks of the incarnation. What he says is that Jesus, with the continued act, he protects us. He keeps us. He preserves us. It's again in the present tense from sin. It speaks of Christ's sovereignty. It speaks of His protection in a hostile world. This is what enables us to keep His commandments and not practice sin. And He speaks of us being born again, again a past action, but ongoing results. He speaks of Christ as born again, but in a different sense of that incarnation. It reminds us of our kinship with Christ that we have with Him. And Jesus as the one who keeps us from temptation because He Himself was also tempted. He understands what we go through. When you go, you women, when you go through the book of Hebrews, you will study this verse. Hebrews 2.18, For because He Himself was, has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ understands what we go through. He helps us. He keeps the believer. Now that's not what modern society says. There's a strain of modern psychology that says that man cannot help himself. He is not responsible for his actions. He's a product of his environment. And then we also see, for example, how many movies and TV series really glorify evil. And you're not sure who's going to win. Will good win? Will evil win? Now, actually, if you read in Revelation, we know the answer to that. But that's not what society says. And there's two views. I cannot help myself. The devil made me do it. Two views. Cannot help myself or the devil made me do it. And with those views, there is no hope. And society has no hope apart from Christ. And yet our help is found in the preservation by Jesus. Because He keeps us. He protects us. But from whom does He protect us? 
John tells us here. He says, He who is born of God protects him, that is the believer, and the evil one does not touch him. The evil one, Satan, does not touch the believer to harm him. The word touch means to take hold of, to cling to, for the purposes of harming. It says he can't do that. That's the result of Christ keeping us. That's the result of our union with Christ. That's the result of God abiding in us and us abiding in Christ. Again, we have hope. 1 John 2.14, John writes, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men and young women, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. And he talks about that again in 1 John 5, 5, that overcoming the world for those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now perhaps we've all heard great stories of those saints who've been protected by God. Billy Graham talks about John Patton and his wife were missionaries to the New Hebrides back in the 1800s. And the inhabitants of the island were cannibals and they killed and ate people, including the missionary who's before John Patton. And there's one night when they had all surrounded, the tribe had surrounded John Patton and his wife, and they were praying for protection from the Lord. And for some reason, the tribe members did not attack the house that John Patton and his wife were at. And the tribal leader came to Christ. And so a year later, a year later John Patton said, why did you not attack us? And he said, how could we? Around your entire house were all these mighty men with swords. And John Patton goes, there was nobody there. Then he realized it was the angels of God that were protecting them. But wait a second. Not everybody's protected that way. What about Job? What about Christians who are martyred? What about Christians who died? My roommate who was the believer was killed in a plane crash on the Independence on a ramp strike. Was God unfaithful? Somehow death touched him. That's not what John is saying here. Satan cannot destroy our soul. He cannot take away our salvation. Christ says in John in uh, Matthew 10 that believers will face persecution. Believers will be delivered up to death. And yet what is the hope that we have? Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. And the only one who can do that is our Lord. And if we are born of God, we don't have to fear because we have an enemy who wants us to fear. And so what is our hope right now? Again, he has all these present tense verbs. We do not practice sin. Christ protects us. Satan cannot harm us. We have hope. He addresses the heretics of, Jesus, of, uh, of John's day. He's addressing the false teachers who are preaching a false gospel who are trying to disorient, who are trying to deceive. And what John is saying is that sin is a present serious reality for all believers, but through Christ it may be overcome. This suggests a spiritual, covenantal, ongoing relationship that we have with Christ. And we have that relationship with God. We have that relationship with Christ. That's what gives us hope. We don't have to be slaves to sin. We don't have to fear death or Satan. Again, we are given hope in the Scriptures. Paul writes 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And again, as he talks about what Christ did in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy death. He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Satan tries to deceive us. He tries to make us believe that he is in control. Tries to make us believe that he is the Lord of hell. Guess what? He's not. He will be an inmate in hell. Who is the Lord of hell? The Lord God Almighty. And so we don't have to fear. We can rest in our relationship with Christ. And so we can have the assurance that we don't have to be subject to sin and we can have the assurance of victory over Satan. But he goes on in verse 19, the assurance of our relationship to God. He writes again in verse 19, we know, and again, we know with certainty, we can be sure that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil. We are from God. God is the source. He's the origin of the relationship. We derive our origin, our relationship, our essence from God. We are His children. Again, John tells in 1 John 3, 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We are in that special relationship. By faith, we can claim the promises made to those who are born of God. And what John is saying, if we are of God, if we are from God, we are not of the devil, we are not from the devil. Well, what does he mean here when he, when he continues? And the whole world lies in the power of the enemy. He lays out a contrast here. You're either born of God or you're under the power of the devil. The power of the enemy is, is the whole world. Well, what is that? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. This world, the whole world is human society that is hostile to God. Organized in opposition to God. Again, John writes about this in 1 John 2. 15 and 16 where he says do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world love for the father is not in him for all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father but is from the world again he talks about in 1 John again 4 and 5 what does he say he says, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. And he says, we are from God. That is our hope. That is reality. We are from God. And he contrasts believers and unbelievers. And what he's saying is that believers are not under the power of the enemy. And the rest of the world is. Either one or the other. The world doesn't believe that. But there's only two options here. Either one is born of God or one is in the power of the evil one. That is a certainty. It's a fact whether the world chooses to believe it or not. And we can rejoice that we've been brought out of the realm of darkness. We don't have to be influenced by Satan. Again, we have hope. Paul writes in uh, Colossians 1 verses 13 through 14, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us 
to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And I found as a chaplain, these were some of the two key areas where the enemy tries to deceive us, to, my, to try to create doubt in our mind. One, that we are from God, and two, that we are no longer under His power. He tries to disorient us spiritually. But yet, we can have hope. How many of you have ever had vertigo? A few of you are raising your hands there. Perhaps you've been lying down and you get up suddenly and your head starts to swim. It can be somewhat frightening. Can you imagine what it's like if you're trying to fly in an airplane or landing on a carrier, having disorient, uh, being disoriented? Again, when I was a landing signal officer, I would see those pilots who were disoriented because we would be up in Marshall at nighttime or in bad weather in a constant circle. And so when you're in a circle, after a while, the fluid in your ears becomes steady and that becomes the level. And when you start your approach as you go level, now you think you're in a turn to the right. We call it the leans. And you really have to fight against that because you feel like you're in a turn even though you're going straight and level and you have to look at your instruments. If you don't, and as I would tell my students, you die. Look at the instruments fly the instruments. If you don't, it creates all sorts of problems. And I can see them kind of going across the horizon. They're trying to sneak and take a look outside the airplane, particularly when there's no horizon, or whether it's dark or in the clouds. There was an interesting article back from 1999 that talked about John F. Kennedy and his death because he was flying without an instrument rating when he should have been flying. And it really describes well what it's like. He says, in the dry parlance of the investigation, this is being called a disorientation accident. Kennedy seems to have had a sudden attack of what pilots call black hole vertigo. A three-way disconnection between reason, instinct, and reality. Even the inability to tell the difference between up and down. In the night haze, Kennedy's instinct began to lie to him. His mind's eye was blind. Only with experience, which Kennedy lacked, could the pilot trust the needles on the dials more than what his brain is telling him. Flight instruments keep us oriented and in control no matter what we feel. You have to trust your instruments. Well, in the Christian life, our instruments are Scripture and the internal witness of the Lord. We look to what the Scriptures say. And when the enemy whispers in your ear, you're not of God. You don't have salvation. Or he whispers, I'm in control. You don't have a hope. We go back to what the scriptures say. That is our flight instrument in the spiritual realm. And that's what gives us hope for us. And so we can have hope. We can have assurance of our relationship with God. And again, the enemy does not want us to believe that. But we have a lively and a sure hope. Lastly, John goes on in verse 20. gives us the assurance of Christ's coming or His incarnation. And he says, and we know, or again, let me translate, and we can be certain that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. He has come, and again, it's the ongoing effects of a past action, the incarnation. And the effects of incarnation is true up to now, will be true in the future. He's saying that Christ has come in the flesh, and again, John is dealing with some of the Gnostic errors that says that the Spirit of Christ came upon the man Jesus at the baptism and the Spirit of Christ left Jesus at the cross before Jesus died and that He only appeared to be in the flesh. Those are some of the heresies that John was dealing with, the early church to deal with. 
And what John is saying, no. That the Son of God has come. It's a historical event. It's a historical reality. It's not a fairy tale. And what does it say? That He's come to give us insight leading to salvation with the person, Jesus, revealing the truth. Again, what does the world say? Oh, Christians, you are so foolish. You're believing a myth. You're walking around like zombies. It's some sort of mass hallucination. Paul deals with that as he talks about the crux of the Christian faith. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, he says, For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. See, again, there's that flight instrument of spirituality, the Scriptures, and that He appeared to see the sin to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all to the one untimely board He appeared to me. What is he saying? There are 500 people, most who are still alive. A historical fact. He came, he died, he rose again. That's why we have hope. It's not a mass hallucination that the world wants us to believe. It's not a fairy tale. Our faith is based on fact. Not a story. That's what gives us hope. And John is saying, we know that he has come. And he has come to give us insight. What is the word insight? Understanding is capacity to understand. It's a process of reasoning leading to perception. Christianity is not a mindless faith. Again, as the world would have you believe. And John writes this in a purpose clause. He says that Christ, again, the Son of God, has come and given us understanding, packed action, ongoing results, a continual resource that we have from Jesus to know the Father, to understand the Father, to have insight for the purpose so that we may know Him who is true or the true one. Different word for know here. Before it was know with certainty. This word know has the idea of facts but also relationship. Different focus that John has. This is the same word that is translated from the Hebrew and Adam knew Eve and a baby was conceived in the idea of relationship that's what John is talking about here and the object of spiritual knowledge is personal it's not abstract it's the object of faith must be valid it's not like Star Wars and I'm already seeing um, talk about the new Star Wars movie coming out and you have the force well who's going to win the power of the dark side or the force we don't know yes we do know but the force is impersonal. God is personal. Jesus is personal. And John says that Christ came that we can have this knowledge and that personal relationship with the one who is true referring to God the Father. The object of spiritual knowledge again is personal. Man cannot find God apart from the revealing work of Jesus. Man cannot find God apart from the Spirit working within our lives. This should encourage us. God to be known in a personal relationship through Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus tells us when disciples say, how are we supposed to know you? 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We look at the Son, we see the Father. You cannot have one without the other. And yet, that should encourage us. And John continues in this as he says, We have understanding so that we know Him who is true, referring to God, and we are in Him who is true, again referring to God. We are in union with God the Father. Then he goes on, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Again, this is a shot across the bow for the heretics, for the believers. He talks about Jesus as the Son. Then he gives His name and His title. Son of God, but also now the Messiah. We're in union with the Father. We're in union with the Son. You cannot have one without the other. What's the basis for this union? Faith in Christ. Again, John tells us in 1 John 4, 15, he writes this, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, the idea of confessing is believing with your heart, trusting Him alone for salvation. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. I don't understand how it works. There's the mystery to this union, but that's what the Scriptures say. We abide in Him. He abides in us. No matter where we go, God is with us. His Word abides in us. You cannot have one without the other. Again, John tells us, he's his own best commentator here in, in uh, 2.23, he says, No one who denies a father, no one who denies a son has a father. Whoever confesses a son has a father also. It's a package deal. You get both, but you not have one without the other. And as John wraps up in verse 20, again, there's a lot of stuff in here. He goes this. He is the true God and eternal life. We are in union with the true God and eternal life. And again, that's compared to idols. Good John in verse 21 says, Little children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from false religions. That's what the false teachers of John's day were trying to teach. Were trying to say. They had a special knowledge. Sin was not a big deal. The material world was evil, so what you did in the material world was not a problem. Don't worry about that. The spiritual world is what's good. And John is saying, no, no, no. Salvation is important only in Christ. What you do is important. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. So, God and Jesus is the true God and the source of eternal life compared to idols. Now, there's different views here as to who John is referring to when he's saying true God and eternal life. In the same verse, the previous two times, he talks about he is true, referring to God the Father. Grammatically, the nearest antecedent would be Jesus Christ, so it could refer to Jesus as well. And you have commentators on both sides saying, well, it's God the Father, it's Jesus the Son. John is being ambiguous. Nobody's really sure why, but perhaps both, well, the reason we know is that both are true. He can be ambiguous because both is true. God the Father is true God in eternal life. Jesus Christ is true God and eternal life. And so, that's what John is telling us here. Doubting Thomas when he was saying, I need to see for myself, what does he say to Jesus? He goes, my Lord and my God. In the Greek it says, the Lord of me, the God of me. And he was no longer a doubter. But he calls Jesus the God. 
And in Revelation 3, 7 and 19, 11, speaks of Jesus being the Holy One, the True One. And in 19, 11, He's called Faithful and True. So both of those are attributed to God the Father, but also God the Son. True God and eternal life. The world doesn't want to hear that. If you believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, you are so intolerant. You're not being loving. Again, one of President Trump's appointees was being challenged by a certain senator who was chastising this guy for actually believing in Jesus and not really being generous for those Muslims who believe in a different way. Is it being loving to love somebody to hell and not share the truth with them? You can be lovingly intolerant, or I would say, I would say intolerant, but they would say that they are lovingly tolerant. But the truth of the matter is, apart from Christ, there is no salvation. That is a message of love. That's why people go out and share the gospel. That's why John Patton, that's why other missionaries, at the cost of their lives, would go out to share this good news. Because it is good news. We are transferred from the domain of dark to the kingdom of light in Jesus Christ because of what Christ has done. And we can have that assurance. That's what he tells us here. So again, what does John tell us? We can have the assurance of victory over sin and Satan. We can have the assurance that we are in a relationship with God. And again, we can have the assurance that Christ has come in a historical event. He died on the cross and He rose again. Because of that, we are liberated from sin and have a true hope that the world does not have and that the world needs. So, self-evaluation. Do you know Christ? Not just intellectually, but trusting Him alone for salvation. That's man's biggest need. From that, assurance of salvation should bring forth to a victorious Christian life. Because remember, this life that we have was very costly. And I'll close with this because Paul tells us in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we may have assurance and not listen to the lies of the enemy and not listen to the lies that are temporarily in the power of the enemy. Lord, may we be assured of our standing with you that when we believe with our heart that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's come in the flesh, that He rose from the dead, that we have a hope, a lively hope, not a wishy-washy hope, that we have been delivered from sin and death. May you receive the honor and the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.